Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Uh, my name is Gregory Haddock. I'm one of the senior producers of the show here, and today we've got a really cool episode. Another brand new producer rolling around, taking it from here, and so you don't have to listen to me anymore. And, and what's better than that? Today we have Annie Roth. Annie, how you doing? I'm great. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing really well. Tell our listeners a little bit about what you do when you're not producing a, a guest episode for Eyes on Conservation. So I work full-time as a freelance reporter, and I cover wildlife and wildlife conservation issues. So when I'm not writing about a new study on birds, I'm reporting on uh, poaching in Africa. There's a lot of different things I cover, but really it's just animals. Animals fascinate me, and I write about them for a living. And today you're bringing us a, no surprise here, another story on animals. That's right. Um, I had a great conversation with a fellow reporter. Her name is Rachel Neuer, and she's a real expert on uh, the wildlife trade, both the illegal and illegal wildlife trade. And I chatted with her about how COVID-19 is impacting the wildlife trade and how it really stems from it. Now, why did you speak with Rachel? Um, was there anything particular about that? Or um, did you already have a connection with her? Or what, what was the, the, the factor there? We've um, been chatting a lot about COVID-19's impact on wildlife, and I wanted to speak with her because she's a real expert in the kind of markets and um, cultures that have been blamed, really, uh, for the uh, outbreak of COVID-19. A few years ago, she went to Vietnam and uh, followed a pangolin poacher and then before that, she's been to various wildlife markets around the world. And I knew she was the person to call for this because not only is she reporting on COVID-19 right now, she has the expertise to really do it right. The term wet market gets brought up a lot. And I'm sure that a lot of people at this point are familiar with that term. Can you clarify for that in, in your own words for somebody who may be coming to that term for the first time? Absolutely. There's actually, yeah, like you were saying, a lot of confusion about what a wet market actually is. A wet market is pretty much a farmer's market that ha that also has live animals or uh, seafood. It really doesn't just mean a live animal market. Some wet markets don't actually have live animals, but the large ones tend to. It's kind of a very vague term. So if someone was to say, close all the wet markets, that wouldn't really be helping uh, stop a live animal trade necessarily. A lot of people around the world depend on wet markets to get their vegetables, to get uh, rice, to get just basic essentials. But there are some wet markets that have sketchy things going on, have live animal trade that's illegal and legal. And it's important to make distinctions because calling for an end to wet markets is not really productive. That's like saying end farmer's markets because someone was selling something sketchy at a farmer's market. Well, at that, let's definitely jump into this interview and let's hear what Rachel had to say. So, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks so much for having me. Let's address the elephant in the room. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. The disease fueling this pandemic, known as COVID-19, is believed to have originated in a wet market in Wuhan, China, where domestic and wild animals were slaughtered and sold as food. You've been investigating the global wildlife trade for nearly a decade. When you heard that the virus that causes COVID-19 originated at a live animal market, were you surprised? 
Oh my gosh, I was not surprised at all. I mean, we've seen time and time again that animals are the source of novel diseases, you know, from SARS to MERS to Ebola. And it's really just an inevitability that new diseases will be emerging from them. For those of us who don't know, could you explain what a zoonotic disease is? Yeah, sure. So a zoonotic disease is just a disease that comes from animals and jumps to humans. So it can be something like Ebola, um, West Nile disease. Could you give our listeners a glimpse of what the global wildlife trade looks like right now? Yeah. Um, so global wildlife trade is super diverse and it's, it's everywhere. Um, almost every country in the world is caught up in it, either as a supplier of wildlife, a source through which wildlife transits, or a source of demand for animals in their parts. And this is everything from exotic pets to medicine, to meat, to trophies, jewelry, you name it. And we're talking about a multi-billion dollar um, contraband enterprise run oftentimes by organized criminal traffickers who also traffic in things like narcotics and arms and humans. And it's also important to point out that not all wildlife trade is illegal. Uh, the vast majority, in, in fact, is probably legal or just unregulated. Can you explain to our listeners how diseases jump from animals to humans in these sort of situations? Yeah, so I'm not a virologist, but I can talk about the environmental conditions that create this sort of uh, perfect natural lab for a virus or other pathogen to jump from an animal to a person. Um, so, you know, people encroaching on new parts of the forest, um, usually because forest is being cut and it's opening up virgin tracks that people normally wouldn't have access to. They're wandering in, their livestock are kind of um, wandering around the outskirts, maybe they're hunting, um, and they're coming into contact with species that normally never meet humans. So there's a perfect opportunity. Now, if a hunter takes an animal from the forest, uh, oftentimes in, in Southeast Asia, this is done uh, with the animals still being alive. And the animal is transported then to a village and a larger town and finally probably to a really big city, ideally still alive because it can get a, a higher price because then it's still fresh. And along the way, um, all these transporter guys are getting more and more animals. You know, they're, they're building up a stock and bringing them as kind of a big group to say a restaurant in Ho Chi Minh City or in Guangzhou or places like that. And the whole time along the way, animals are, are stressed, you know, they're not being fed, they're hot, they're, they're um, bound up together. And that means they're shedding viral particles even more so than usual. And, you know, these viral particles are mixing between species. You might have like reptiles, bats, um, small mammals, carnivores, all kinds of things thrown in together. Finally, at the market, there's usually cages that are just stacked right on top of each other. You know, you might have like a turtle on top of a civet on top of a bat or something like that. And all that poop, all those secretions are mixing together, again, just creating this perfect lab for viruses to jump, not just within species and mutate, but also to be transferred to the humans who are coming into contact with them, either handling them, slaughtering them or buying them. Tell me a little bit about the wildlife markets that you've seen in your reporting. What kind of animals are being sold and what are they being sold for? So I've been 
all over the place in Asia, you know, from Laos and Myanmar to Vietnam and China and Indonesia and other places in between. So I've seen quite a number of wet markets. I mean, some are just essentially farmers markets. You know, people are there selling their fresh fresh produce, their poultry. Um, sometimes there's a little wildlife section. There'll be like a lady selling turtles and snakes or maybe like captured birds or even rats. Uh, and then I've been to some places that are just a complete menagerie of exotic animals. So at a pet market in Jakarta, um, for example, I remember seeing owls, fruit bats, um, hundreds of species of birds, songbirds, um, snakes, cats, dogs, civets. I mean, the list just went on and on. And it's really at those kind of places where we have the most risk of a zoonotic disease jumping from from animals to humans just because there's more exotic animals there, there's more species, and there's just um, there's more variability. Interesting. So this particular virus emerged in China, and the government has responded by pledging to address their illegal wildlife markets and crack down, increase regulations on their legal wildlife markets. Do you think this is something they will follow through with? You know, in the past, China has not followed through on those commitments. So after SARS, uh, for a brief time, I think for about a year, wild mar- wildlife markets in um, the province where SARS emerged were shut. But, you know, soon the wild life farmers, there's a a very big farming industry for wild animals in China, started lobbying the government. And, you know, the government's invested in many of those farms. And before you knew it, um, the farms were up and going again, the the trade was up and going again, like nothing had happened. However, I do think this is very, very different. I mean, you know, SARS was like a a little blip on the map compared to COVID-19. And I think that China is really taking it seriously, or as, as serious as we can hope. Um, this is based on me talking to sources on the ground there, you know, Chinese sources who say they've never been more optimistic in their entire careers that there could actually be meaningful change. Now, that said, some of the things they're proposing do have quite a few loopholes. For example, traditional Chinese medicine isn't on the list of considerations for the time being of things that will be shut down or things that will have certain products banned from them, I should say. Reptiles like turtles and frogs aren't on the list of banned species because they're considered quote unquote aquatic rather than terrestrial. So there are things like that that still need to be addressed. But overall, I think it's a really, really good, strong first step. And I really hope they follow through with it. The really important distinction there is that there's a lot of really great commerce and trade that happens at wet markets, but that there's also some seedy stuff going on behind the scenes in isolated packs, right? Or like how, I guess the question is, how big is is that illegal trade industry um, and how much is it impacting those markets? Well, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And in places where regulation is scant, you're going to have sketchy things going on at wet markets. If you go to like a, a rural community that has a wet market, they might have someone selling, you know, local wildlife that a hunter caught and is just selling to the local community. That's not really the big money maker here. The kind of wet markets people are more worried about are wet markets in huge cities where there is 
little to no oversight so people can traffic wildlife from all over the world and sell it there live dead prepared anyway really a lot of a lot of illegal wildlife products are dried or processed in some way so the big wildlife trafficking operations you know they're not always direct to customer in markets sometimes they're online people will do you know special deliveries right to your house i've seen um online advertisements for people saying i'll bring rhino horn right to your house oh my god um, if really if you live in yeah a lot of wildlife trade is actually shifting online right now because of covid-19 the markets are closed and people have all these products they want to sell and so they'll advertise like you know I'll get it across the border ship it to your house um or they'll just sell little advertise it in vague terms I've seen ads for penguin scales that were marketed as armadillo skin mm. um but the product has a photo of a penguin on it and if you do a quick google translate you can see you know the uh description is clearly indicating it's penguin to create conditions where a zoonotic disease would emerge like a wildlife market is a perfect place and i'm not just talking about ones in asia when we're shipping live animals into the united states like we import all kinds of animals camels and sheep and you know all kinds of weird things when we're moving them around live and not checking them for disease which we overwhelmingly do not it creates the same conditions as you might find in an asian market that where someone's selling a bat next to a pangolin and mm -hmm. they're stressed out and not being cared for any scenario where you have exotic animals in close quarters and their health is not being monitored you are creating a condition where a zoonotic disease can emerge China isn't the only country to have these kind of live animal markets, but I think a lot more people are taking a harder look at them and wondering if the risk is worth the reward. So, in a perfect world, what changes would happen to reduce our risk of seeing another pandemic like this? Gosh, there's so many things we can do to just to reduce that risk, and of course, we can never eliminate that risk, but you know, we can stop trading exotic animals at the quantities we do and in the ways we do. Um, you know, just introducing things like basic hygiene to markets would go a long way. Uh, we could do things like ban certain animals from consumption, like bats, you know, animals that have a high risk of, of carrying some kind of disease. Um, a lot of places or a lot of nonprofit groups are proposing complete bans on, on wildlife consumption. One of them is the Wildlife Conservation Society. Others say, you know, no, that's too strong. There's a way to do this sustainably and a way to do it more safely. So probably um, somewhere in between those two views is the sweet spot we want to hit. We also just need to be more respectful and careful of how we treat nature. It's not just wildlife trade that introduces this risk of new diseases. It's also um, going into forests and, you know, cutting down forests and opening up areas. There's been studies done in Brazil, for example, that found that um, malaria incidence occurs on the fringes of newly cut forests. It's because this this kind of interface area, that between zone between forest and field or development, it creates opportunities for insects to breed, for species to come into contact that have never met each other, things like that. So I think just a general reevaluation of how we treat animals and nature would really take us far. Evidence is strong that the wildlife trade played a role in the emergence of the virus that causes COVID-19, but the trade itself has been heavily impacted 
by the pandemic we're all dealing with. Can you tell me some ways that you're seeing in your reporting that the wildlife trade is being impacted by the border closures and the lack of travel? Yeah, so the Wildlife Justice Commission, which is a nonprofit based in The Hague in the Netherlands, they just put out a report last week showing uh, the impacts of uh, COVID-19 on traffickers in Asia specifically. They have agents all over the world who regularly maintain contact with what they call persons of interest, people who are involved in wildlife trade. And they surveyed about 20 of those people. And, you know, at first in February, all these traders were like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Like, don't worry about it. Maybe your your illegal goods that you ordered in Laos or that you ordered in Vietnam will be, you know, two or three days delayed to ship to your house in China. But don't worry, we've got this. Um, then, of course, as the pandemic continued to develop and borders started to shut, um, traders started to change their tune and said, you know, like, yeah, we can't get things to China right now. So all indications are that at least the movement of illegal goods in vast quantities, and we're talking pangolin scales, ivory, and rhino horn. Um, we're not talking about, you know, like that snake that someone caught in their rice paddy. We're talking about criminal, true criminal activity. Evidence indicates that those things have sort of ground to a halt in terms of the logistics of getting them from point A to point B, that traders in Vietnam especially are starting to build up these vast stockpiles of materials that they just can't move to China at the moment. Uh, that said, any halt or pause to illegal wildlife trafficking is going to be temporary. You know, As soon as those borders open up, as soon as um, traders figure out a way to get around them, they will start moving that material. But you know, sources are saying that this op this offers a really great opportunity for law enforcement if they want to do some major busts, you know, instead of just getting like one off uh, shipments here and there that they intercept, they can actually go and like take down these huge storehouses of goods and hopefully actually make some arrests. What do you think from a conservation perspective that we've learned dealing with this pandemic? <laughs> great question. I hope that we've learned something, anything, you know, Right now, I think the issue of wildlife trade and just our meddling with nature and what that can result in is really at the forefront of the public's mind and policymakers' minds more than it has perhaps ever been. However, I also know that people have short memories. You know, it's hard to imagine things going back to normal, but they will eventually go back to normal. And I just really hope that there will be lasting impacts and changes that arise out of this, because otherwise we're just going to be repeating this exercise over and over again. How can conservationists take advantage of the moment we're in right now? I think conservationists are doing a really good job taking advantage of this moment. You know, they are publishing studies like the one I cited from the Wildlife Justice Commission. They're talking to journalists. They're campaigning to just really hammer the point home that there is a clear link between us messing with nature and animals and global pandemics. I mean, conservationists have been warning about this for years, decades. It's not some sort of big surprise that this happened. Um, I guess the surprise is when it happens. But, you know, the next one could be the one that's even more transmissible, the one that's even more deadly. We're really just playing Russian roulette as long as we continue down the path we're going. If nothing changes, what do you expect to see in the years to come? Mm. Well, I mean, wildlife trade 
if it continues as usual, I mean, we're going to lose species. Populations are going to continue to decline of everything from, you know, turtles and tortoises to pangolins to tigers uh, to elephants and rhinos. And, you know, eventually we'll see more zoonotic diseases emerging as a result of wildlife trade. You know, it's, it's just a matter of time. Hopefully we can, we can learn this lesson. I'm trying to be optimistic. Some people have floated the idea that pangolins might have been the intermediate host of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are the jury's still out. You know, there was a pre-publication paper, which means it hadn't been peer-reviewed, that came out. And a lot of people kind of jumped on it and said, oh, my God, pangolins, this is the revenge of the pangolin, because... Um, pangolins, if you don't know, they're the world's only scaled mammal, and they're also the world's most trafficked mammal. They're sought after for traditional Chinese medicine and also for their meat. Anyway, another study came out a couple weeks ago now that said actually the coronaviruses that naturally occur in pangolins are not a match to the one that's now circulating around the world, although it does look like a close relative. So we still don't know what the animal reservoir was for this new coronavirus or what the intermediary species was that allowed it to jump, say, from bats to another animal to us. But, you know, at least it's put pangolins more on people's minds. And yeah, if you want to know more about pangolins, definitely check out my book, Poached Inside the Dark World of Wildlife Trafficking. I interview a pangolin hunter. I go to a restaurant serving pangolin meat. And it's not all depressing. I also go to a release of rehabilitated pangolins that were saved from the wildlife trade. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Annie, when you talk to Rachel Neuer or to any other animal experts or in your own experiences and, and research, do you ever get a sense of the absurdity of a single industry or single group of people that have the capacity to really play Russian roulette with the rest of the planet or the rest of humanity? Absolutely. It's it's sometimes mind-boggling to think that that someone would feel entitled to the horn of an animal, say a rhino, who so few of them exist from a whole other part of the world. So if I'm someone in Vietnam buying some rhino horn, an impoverished poacher had to go out, risk their lives to get that horn and probably got paid a couple, maybe a hundred bucks at most for it. Then someone has to traffic it across the world at risk to themselves and bring it to me across borders, just commit, you know, crime on crime. And I can't imagine someone being like, I deserve that that all those things need to happen for me to get this, right? you know, this product that has no scientific backing for the medicinal uses that it's advertised for. Although right. it's, it's largely a status symbol, but yeah, it's, there's so much that goes on and that's not even addressing, you know, the pandemic risk that people create. And I really hope that this whole, you know, terrible circumstances that we're in right now teaches people a little bit about, the dangers of messing with wildlife the way we are. A lot of wildlife products are advertised as medicine when I think it's clear that the odds of someone getting sick from something like that, like a illegal wildlife product or even a legal one, is much greater than them getting healed. 
it, you know, it seems like China wants to respond to this the right way and, you know, talking about new regulation and talking about new laws, and that's great. But then it seems like there's a lot of a lot of really blatant loopholes that still allow things like, you know, quote, in quote, traditional Chinese medicines that, like you said, probably don't really have any kind of scientific foundation whatsoever. That kind of all combined or with this kind of umbrella of, of cultural relativism, what what is the path forward there? Does, do you what do you think about that? Well, I will say that I don't really believe China is going to take the steps necessary to address the threat that the, that their activities are posing to the whole world right now. And that's and that's where we'll end the show right yeah. there. Right? Thanks, everybody. <laughs> it's it's just we've seen time and time again when um, species were pushed to near extinction or diseases like SARS emerged. They said they were going to act, and they really didn't. And this is, I know, an unprecedented situation, but we, the whole world needs to come together and kind of hold their feet to the fire and make sure that they follow up on their promises because talk is useless right now. We need action. Anyone living everywhere has a right to their local, I guess, wild and natural resources. I think that... It's unfair for, say, a, a child in Africa not to grow up knowing what a rhino looks like or what a um, a giraffe looks like up close because someone in another country wanted a piece of that animal for themselves. That's, I just think, unjust. And I think we need to, each country on its own needs to take a second and think about what their natural resources mean to them. And if they're worth being exported all over the world or sold for frivolous purposes. I think that's totally spot on. Annie Roth, thank you so much for this report. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm your guest producer, Annie Roth. If you want to learn more about wildlife or how it's being impacted by COVID-19, check out my stories on rothreporting.com. Or if you want to hear from experts, check out the Eyes on Conservation Patreon. On there, you can find information about Q&As, live events, and how to support our podcast. Our podcast keeps going from donations from people like you. So please give generously. Patreon.com slash Collective. Today's show was produced by Annie Roth and edited by Gregory Haddock. An extended version of this show with a lot more conversation and exclusive content is available on our Patreon exclusively to our patrons. For as little as a buck of creation, you have access to this content and a whole lot more other perks. Thank you so much for supporting the work that we do.